Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the, on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And, where, and wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. From Enged, from Engedi to Engelam, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea, but its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. All right. Well, welcome, New City. I am so excited to be with you today, especially because today is Family Sunday. So kids, I'm so excited you're here. Welcome. Uh, I want all the kids, I want to ask you to do me a favor real quick, and don't worry, it's super easy. I just want you to raise your hand if you like to play games. Do you like to play games? Yeah, most of you? All right, awesome. What, it, what about this? Raise your hand if you like to play games for prizes. Ooh, there we go. Well, guess what? We are going to play a game today. We're going to play a game during the message. When you came in today, you should have received a packet. And in that packet, one of the things there is a bingo card with a bunch of different pictures on it. And here's how this is going to work. We're going to play Kid City Bingo. So what's going to happen is you're going to want to pay attention to these screens. And every now and then, a little picture kind of like this one is going to pop up. Now, you can look at your card if you want, but just so you know, this is an example. This isn't one of your cards. Uh, but you, what you're going to do is when you see a picture like that pop up, you'll look at your card, and if you have that picture on your card, you're going to want to mark it. And you've got to be playing, paying close attention because these pictures are going to move around. It might be there, or it might be there, or it might be over here, or it might be there. You never know. So you've got to be keeping a close eye because here's the thing. I mentioned prizes. And if you mark off all of the boxes on your bingo card at the end of service, you can turn that bingo card in, or you can show it to us, and you'll get a prize. You want to know what the prize is? Oh, you already know. Donut holes, kind of like these. And also, just in case you haven't got with the game yet, this is your first one. So hint, hint right there. Find the donut holes and mark them off. 
Adults, uh, sorry, you don't get to play this one, but you know you can still enjoy the pretty pictures. Also, if you're if you're at home, if you're watching online, uh, you can play along. You can go to the app or to the Kid City portion of the website, and you can download your own bingo card and play along with us. So before we get into our message today, I have another reason that today is an exciting day, a day of celebration. And uh, Karen alluded to it in the announcements today, but you may or may not know that about a year ago, New City purchased a new building and with the intent to move into that new building. So New City's gonna be moving, uh, not very far, just a little ways down San Mateo. But for the last year or so, we've been leasing that building to another church, to North Church, and today they are celebrating the fact that this is their last service in that building because they themselves have found an, a building that they were able to purchase and that they're moving into. In fact, they've already moved all their stuff. They're having kind of an unplugged service today. It's pretty cool. Uh, Pastor Nate is over there today with them. He's going to be praying over them. And I thought it would be fitting if we did the same. So if you would, uh, join me in a prayer for North Church right now. God, I just thank you for, uh, for your church. I thank you that New City is not, is not the end-all, be-all. It's not the only church in this city uh, but we have a whole network of churches. We have a whole family of churches, Lord, that are all working towards your vision for what Albuquerque can be. I thank you specifically for the congregation at North and for that community. I thank you for your provision and them finding a building and just the, the joy that we get to celebrate with them today as they say goodbye to the old and look to the new. And I just pray, Lord, that that transition would go smoothly, that all the logistics involved would, would just fall into place. But I especially pray tonight or today for the leadership. I pray for the pastor and the staff and the elders. Uh, I thank you for the vision that you've laid on their hearts, and I just pray that you will continue to invigorate them and sustain them and be with them as they, as they partner with you in bringing that vision to fruition. So thank you for this new opportunity, this new adventure for them, and thank you that we get to, to partner with them in that and journey with them that in, in that as well. In your name we pray. Amen. So today we are concluding our... Our short series, it was only two weeks, our short series on Parched, talking about finding life in the desert. And I just have to warn you, if you don't have a drink handy, you might get a little thirsty during this message. Uh, I probably will. In fact, I kind of already am. And as I was preparing the message, I definitely was getting thirsty because we're talking about thirst today. And I found that the more I think about thirst and the more I talk about thirst, the thirstier I become. So I'm sorry, uh, if you didn't get a drink, you can step out for a second, get some coffee, whatever you need. Uh, I brought mine up here too, so you'll have to forgive me if I partake as well. But I want to talk about being thirsty, and as I was thinking about being thirsty, I was trying to think about a story in my life where I was really thirsty. And the story that came most readily to my mind happened a couple years ago. I was training for, uh, for a run, and I decided to go on a long run that day, and I planned to run 18 miles. And this was the first time that I had decided to undertake a run that long. Now, I say I planned, uh, but I use that term really loosely. If you know me, uh, you know anytime I say plan, it's pretty loose. Turns out I didn't plan very well at all. I didn't take into account the summer heat. I didn't take into account the fact that I was leaving later than I meant to. Uh, long story short, I didn't bring nearly enough water. And I recognized this partway through my run, and I began trying to ration the water that I had, but the sun was beating down on me, and the thirst drove me to drink, and so I ran out, completely ran out, early, like at mile 12. This was an out-and-back run, and I don't carry my cell phone with me most of the time, couldn't call for anyone, and there was nothing I could do except make it the remaining six miles back to my car. So I kept running, uh, I started running slower and slower, and then finally, I was so dehydrated, I couldn't run anymore. And so I started walking and walking and walking. 
And I kept getting hotter and hotter and more and more dehydrated. And I saw over the embankment there was this really gross kind of putrid irrigation ditch. And I went and I stood at the edge of that ditch and I kind of, I weighed my options of drinking this microbe-filled water that was sure to make me sick but could probably at least keep me alive until I got to my car or pressing on. I stood there for way too long because I was too dehydrated to make a good choice, but finally I did decide I wasn't at that point yet. And so instead of drinking the water, I dipped my shirt in it and I tied the wet shirt around my head and I continued my walk. Eventually, though, it got to where it wasn't so much as a walk as more of a shuffle because my body was shutting down. My muscles were cramping. I was uh, lightheaded. I had a blazing headache. It was, I was not in good shape. And I began to long for that irrigation ditch. And that gross water, I decided that the scale had tipped enough that I should probably drink it and take my chances. I don't know what all I could get from that. Certainly diarrhea at the least, but who knows. But I began to long for that irrigation ditch, but I had left it behind. And so here I was in the middle of nowhere with nothing but the sun. And then about a mile and a half from my car, I stumbled upon an aid station that somebody had put out. And it was just one of those big old things of Gatorade, like you dump on your coach when you celebrate a win. And it was just like an oasis in the middle of the desert. And I went and I sat in the dirt by that, by that jug and I filled my water bottle with Gatorade and I drank and I sat until I finally had enough strength to get up and continue my walk home. And so I made it to the car, I made it home where my poor wife was loading up our two little kids in the car to come search for me because uh, I was very overdue. She was quite uh, upset and probably reasonably so. Uh, I thought maybe that she was just upset because I took so long, and so if she knew just how close I came to death, maybe that she would be so excited that I survived, she'd forget to be angry. Uh, turns out that that's not how that happened. Uh, it got, somehow it made things slightly worse. But that is, if not the thirstiest I've ever been, at least very close. And I will tell you, that is the best that Gatorade has ever tasted. I don't know if you've had an experience like that where you have been that thirsty. But that's kind of the thirst that I want to have in our mind. And I want us to think about, about this idea of desert and dryness and just how the ground cracks. The ground itself becomes thirsty and everything longs for that refreshing drink of pure water. So we find ourselves again today in the book of Ezekiel. And I'll tell you, Ezekiel comes from a very dark time in Israel's past. Most of the book isn't too... Uh, uplifting. Most of the book is, is about judgment and about bad things that are happening. In fact, a few chapters earlier than the one we're in today, a few chapters earlier uh, in the book, Ezekiel has this vision, and it's a heartbreaking vision. But it's a vision where he, he swept up to the temple of the Lord, and this was a place where in the Holy of Holies, this is where heaven and earth interlocked. This was where the very presence of God, the glory of God, the kabod of Yahweh, kabod is that word, it means heavy and glory. This is where that presence was with the people. But Ezekiel sees this vision where the glory of the Lord, the kabod Yahweh, departs the temple. And it starts in the Holy of Holies, and it begins to move through the inner sanctums of the temple, and then finally into the outer courts and across the threshold, and eventually it moves through the city to the eastern gate and beyond the eastern gate into the wilderness. Not too long after this, the people of Judah will follow the Kabod Yahweh, though they won't do it knowingly or even willingly because they will be conquered by a, an army and a ruler who is going to force many of their people into what we call exile. 
And he's going to force them to take that same route into the eastern wilderness and beyond into a foreign land. And so the people of Judah were carried off into exile. And this was a very bleak time for them, a very dark time for them. And the reason that they went into exile, it's not like God just changed God's mind. It was like, ah, you guys drive me nuts. In fact, if we see uh, Ezekiel's vision, the hope that we have is that God actually goes before them into exile. It will take them generations to recognize that, but that's actually what takes place. But God had warned his people about exile. He had warned them saying, my name is on you as a nation, but that means that you have to act according to my name. You can't be like all of the other nations. So this all started when the people weren't even a people yet. It started back in Egypt when they were just a a group of enslaved nobodies. They were nobody and nothing, and to the Egyptians, they weren't even people. They were just seen as something to be used and abused, just a commodity to better Egypt. And so they cried out to God, and so God heard their cry and brought these nobody slaves out and began to make them God's people. And so 40 years he spent working with them in the wilderness, providing for them and caring for them and talking to them about what it meant to be God's nation. And so he told them, I'm not just making another Egypt out of you. You can't just be a better version of Egypt. You are to be a nation of priests. I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to the rest of the world. Remember, the priests are the ones who mediate God's presence. And that's what this nation was to be. And as they journeyed through the desert together in this wilderness, God came to them and and tabernacled with them. The tabernacle was the tent that God's presence filled, and that was the place where heaven and earth interlocked, where the kabod, Yahweh, rested. And so this is their history, and as God brings them into the promised land, and they, they trade their tents for houses, he begins to tell them again, remember who you are. Remember that you operate differently. Remember when you were poor and powerless and enslaved and nobody. So when you find the poor and the powerless and the nobody among you, you must care for them. You can't abuse them or take advantage of them. And this group is always represented by the widow and the orphan and the immigrant, the foreigner in the land. And it goes okay for a little while, but it's not too long before Israel begins to look a lot more like Egypt. They have the economic system of Egypt and the power system of Egypt. They even intentionally design a lot of their systems based on what they see in Egypt. And before you know it, there's this gap between the haves and the have-nots. And the haves continue to to take from the have-nots. And the poor and the powerless, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, they're used and abused. They're seen as nothing and no one. And so God warns the people, this, this is what I was talking about. You can't be like that because my name is on you and I am not like that. I'm the one who hears the cries of the poor and the powerless and I bring them out and I care for them and provide for them. So God warned the people over and over, but the people didn't listen. And so finally we see this heartbreaking vision where God says, if this is the way you're going to be, I can't be here. And so the glory of the Lord, the Kubot Yahweh, departs. And eventually the people are carried off into exile. So most of Ezekiel is pretty bleak. Most of Ezekiel is judgment and telling them why this is happening and all these horrible visions. Most of Ezekiel is pretty bleak, but even in this bleakness, there's still hope. I already mentioned that God's presence actually goes before the people, but we saw last week when Christian brought his message, when Pastor Christian spoke to us last week, he talked about this other vision that Ezekiel has, this vision of hope, where Ezekiel is taken to this valley and he he sees these bones 
And the scripture tells us not just these bones, but that they are dry bones, and not just dry, but very dry bones. This is a picture of not just death, but the deathliest death. And God asks, can these bones live again? And Ezekiel says, only you know, Lord. And and so God begins to, to stitch the bones together and weave in sinew and muscle. And then we see the conclusion where God breathes the ruach. That's the Hebrew word for for breath or spirit. He breathes his spirit into these and he brings new life where there was death, even the deathliest death. So we see hope and today our passage again is another one of those visions of hope. See, when Israel, when Judah was taken into exile, their temple, among other things, was destroyed. And remember, the temple was that place that replaced the tabernacle where heaven and earth interlocked. And so the temple was destroyed, and and this was a a traumatic event for the people. Well, God begins to give Ezekiel a vision of when the temple will be rebuilt, and the chapter we read from today is part of that vision. And in this vision, we have this, uh, this angelic guy that takes Ezekiel, and he takes him to the throne room, to the Holy of Holies. And there it says that a little water is bubbling up. In fact, the Hebrew word right there is an onomatopoeia. It sounds a lot like gurgle. It's kind of like if you pour out water on the land, on the ground, like you pour out a water bottle, it's like, la, la, la. it's that gurgle sound. That's law. Anyway, so it starts all along at the throne room of God, and then it starts to trickle out through the temple. And it trickles out through that eastern gate into the wilderness, and the, this angelic guy takes Ezekiel, and they go about a thousand cubits, and suddenly it's ankle deep. They go a little bit further, and it's knee deep. They go a little bit further, and it's waist deep. They go a little bit further, and what started as the oh, is now this raging river that encompasses the whole person. You can swim in it, but it's so big you can't even cross it. And this river is not just mighty and big, but wherever this river flows, the dead places are brought back to life. Wherever this river flows, the dead places are brought back to life. And so we see all of this vegetation growing up. We see trees growing up on the banks of the river. But the life-giving power of this river is so potent that these trees don't just bear fruit seasonally. They bear a crop every month, capable of sustaining. I mean, talk about abundance. They're abundantly fruitful. And not only that, but the, the whole river just swarms with fish all kinds of fish. It talks about the Great Sea. That was a Mediterranean Sea, saying that that this river has as much fish in it as the whole Mediterranean Sea, and all you have to do is toss your nets in, and you have more than you could ever hope for. So this is the vision that Ezekiel sees of this river, and then eventually this river goes down into the Dead Sea. Now the Dead Sea, if you don't know, the shores of the Dead Sea are the lowest dry land on the planet. The Dead Sea sits at almost 1,400 feet below sea level. And the water that feeds it has ran through the desert, and it's picked up all these salts and minerals, and it comes to to this basin that is the Dead Sea, and what happens is there's nowhere for the water to go. It doesn't flow out. The only way it leaves is through evaporation. If you remember your science, when you evaporate water, it leaves all that other stuff behind. So over millennia, this sea becomes saltier and saltier until finally it's so salty and mineral-filled that nothing can live there. So they aptly name it the Dead Sea. And so we have this vision of this great river flowing to the Dead Sea, and what we would expect to happen is when this fresh water flows into the Dead Sea, all of that mineral and grime and all of the death there would infect this fresh water, and it would just 
it would just make more dead. And that was a common way that the people of Ezekiel's time thought. They thought of this way of clean and unclean. And any time the unclean came in contact with the clean, it always, it, always, it always polluted and made the clean unclean. But what we see when this fresh water, this potent river of, lo- of life flows into this dead place, and not just dead, but the deathliest of dead places, when it flows into this place, we see that the unclean doesn't make the clean unclean, but the clean makes the unclean clean. Say so that five times fast. But the point is, the life and power is so potent that flows from the throne of God that it makes the deathliest place live again. It brings new life, life that could never have been imagined. And why? It says because it flows from the throne room of God. See, this river becomes the the symbol for the embodiment of God, the manifestation of God, God's glory, God's person, God's being. And wherever God is, there is new life, even when it's a valley of very dry bones or a sea that is so dead, it's named the Dead Sea. Even in those places, the lowest of the low, the driest of the dry, the thirstiest of the thirsty, this new water brings fresh relief. So I want us to keep this vision in our mind, but I want to jump over to the Gospel of John, specifically John chapter 7. And I want to look at a couple verses there, but let me set it up for you. What's happening here is this is part of a a larger unit, and Jesus is, is participating in one of the holiest festivals of the year. There's several holy festivals for Israel. The one probably we're most familiar with is Passover. But this is another one of like the top four holiest festivals in Israel. And it's called the Festival of Booths or the Festival of Tabernacles. Or in Hebrew, it's the Sukkoth. And what this is, is this is a a festival that's celebrated at harvest time. And it does several things, but one of the things it does is it recalls for the people back to that time of Exodus that we talked about when God brought his people through the desert. See, tabernacle means tent, and this was a a festival where the people would move out of their established homes. They would erect tents again, and they would live in these tents for eight days, and they would recall and rehearse the story of their beginning of being the people of God when God cared for them and provided for them in the midst of the desert. And, And they would also celebrate the the way that God had provided over the last year by giving rain and crops and the way that God continues to sustain his people. See, they saw God as a source of life and they celebrated that God continued to give them life. And so a really important part of the ceremonies and rituals was each morning for the first seven days, priests would go to this special pool, the special well, the well of Siloam, and they would take this special golden vessel And they would draw water from this pool and they would take it back and march around the temple and they would take it to the altar and pour out this water at the foot of the altar. And what that did is, again, it recalled for them the way that God provided for them in the desert. Because if you think about it, the thing you need most in the desert is water. And when God brought his people into the desert, they soon realized there's no water here. And they began to freak out and think that they were going to die, and they complained to God. And they eventually find what they thought was an oasis, but it turns out the water is, it's like that irrigation ditch I found. It was putrid, stinky, and bitter. They couldn't drink it. And so they're like, what good is this water? It's just going to kill us faster. And so God tells Moses, throw this stick into the water, and miraculously the water is made pure. Again, the clean makes the unclean clean. Life is brought forth. The water is made sweet. They're able to drink, and they're sustained. 
But they don't stay at that oasis. They move on, so it's not very long before they're out of water again. And again, they're grumbling, and again, they're complaining, and again, they're facing death and desperation. And in the midst of this, God tells Moses, tell this rock to give water. Moses takes a little bit differently. He hits the rock with a stick, but it brings forth life-giving water. And so pouring out this water at the altar reminds the people that God brought them water even out of a rock in the midst of the desert. And again, God brings them rain year in and year out to sustain them. So they do that for the first seven days, but on the final day of the festival, the eighth day, uh, that portion is concluded, so there is no water. It's not taken from Siloam. The vessel is done. They don't pour it out before the altar. And it's in this context that Jesus stands up to say something. And I want us to notice these two verses in chapter uh, 7, beginning in verse 37. It says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now I have to tell you, this was a really controversial thing for Jesus to say. In fact, it splits those who hear him. Some begin to see who Jesus might be, this idea of Messiah, the promised one, the one that God has sent to bring them new life. But others see this as blasphemy because Jesus is weaving scripture in ways here that, that put him in the place of God. Because it's God who has said this, that God will bring forth, forth this water. And so Jesus, on the day when there is no water, he stands up and says, if you're thirsty, come to me, and I will give you water, and this water will well up in you. And rivers will flow from you. The Greek here says that it ushers forth from their belly, which is kind of funny. Uh, but the belly for the ancient people was, was kind of like our heart. It was the seat of emotion, the core of who they were. We change it to heart because that's what it means for us, the core of who we are. That's where this water will spring up and, and usher forth from and, and flow. So while this was controversial for Jesus to say, this wasn't actually the first time Jesus had this conversation. In fact, if you go back a few chapters to John chapter 4, you see Jesus has a very similar conversation at a time when he himself finds himself thirsty. It's the middle of the day, and it's hot, and he's thirsty, and he sits alone at a well, and he has no way to draw water. And along comes this woman, not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman. And I love so much about this story, and we can't get into it in detail, but I will say this, one of the things I absolutely love about this story is this ends up being the first like extended theological discourse and conversation that Jesus has in John's gospel, and he has it with a woman. And not just any woman, but a Samaritan woman. Jesus was a Jew. The Jews and the Samaritans were enemies. So it's unexpected, and it's surprising. In fact, it's so surprising that when Jesus asks this woman for a drink, she doesn't know, is this a trap? What's going on? And she begins to kind of banter and test Jesus and then in verse 10 of chapter 4, Jesus answers her and says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Moving on to verse 13, as they continue their conversation, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, speaking of the well that they're sitting at, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be, will, uh, will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become, again, in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
So Jesus has had this conversation before, but he has it more publicly now. And Jesus is saying something very important about who he is. Because again, the river in Ezekiel's mind and vision that flows from the temple, it's the, the embodiment of God, the manifestation of God's glory and who God is, right? And now Jesus is saying something that we need to pay attention to because now he's saying that source flows from me. Jesus is saying, in essence, before you had the tabernacle, and that's where heaven and earth interlocked, and then you had the temple, and that's where heaven and earth interlocked, but now Jesus says, you have me. Jesus, in fact, becomes the living temple, the place where heaven and earth interlock, the embodiment of who God is. We call that incarnation. And in fact, John begins his gospel by saying the word, meaning Jesus, came and tabernacled among us. He's drawing out that Jesus is, in fact, the living temple, and from this temple flows the same potent, life-giving water. Oh, oh, good. One of you is excited. That was the exciting part. I mean, that's some pretty exciting stuff, except this part's also exciting, because here's the thing. The tabernacle, the temple, the living temple of Jesus, but then at the death and resurrection of Jesus, something crazy happens. See, what happens is, just like Jesus said, that those who drink of this water and believe, it will well up in them, and out of their heart will flow this river. Do you see what's happening? He calls his disciples, and by extension, the church, us, he calls us his body. And remember, Christ's body was the, the embodiment of who God was. See, if we call ourselves Christians, we're saying we are little Christ. That's what that means. We are little incarnations of God. We are, in fact, living temples. Do you see that? The body of Christ becomes the living temple. It becomes that place where heaven and earth interlock, where God's presence and being is mediated out into the world in life-giving ways. And here's what I mean by body of Christ. I don't mean that I am the body of Christ or that you as an individual are the body of Christ, or even that New City as a church is the body of Christ. Because see, any of us individualized, we in and of ourselves are not the body of Christ. But the church, universal, that big sea, all who have come and drank from this spring and this fountain, we are together the body of Christ and the embodiment of who God is. And from us flows this living water that can bring healing and new life even to the deadliest of dead places. So I want to point something out to us about the requirement that Jesus puts. The requirement that Jesus puts on, on being able to drink this living water. The thing is, there's only one requirement. There's only one thing Jesus says that says this is what you have to do in order to drink this water. Going back to verse 37 of chapter 7 of John. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, and here's the requirement, if anyone thirsts. If anyone thirsts. He doesn't say, if anyone has it all figured out, come and drink. He doesn't say, if anyone has become the greatest Bible scholar of all time, come and drink. If anyone has gone to church their whole lives and listened to a thousand sermons and hundreds of Bible studies, come and drink. If anyone has gotten their life together enough that you don't smell bad and look weird and, and that you're presentable enough and, and you don't have to hide things in your closet and you don't have to be ashamed of that stuff, come and drink. If anyone thinks that they're worthy, come and drink. This isn't what Jesus says. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, 
If anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. So that's my question. Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Do you thirst like this? There's a a psalm that talks about, as a deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for God. And I think because deer are so cute, we don't really get the weight of this. This deer is dying. It knows that if it doesn't get water soon, it's over. It's a deer of desperation. And it's panting with the last of its breaths to find water. Are we thirsty like that? Are we driven like that? And if we are, where are we turning to get our water? Are we turning to the putrid, gross irrigation ditch because it's there? Or in Isaiah, God talks about the people sinning, and he says that you've sinned in two ways. You've refused to drink from the water of life, the river of life. And he says that instead, you've hewn out your own cisterns, but your cisterns are broken and they can't hold water. See, we can try to satisfy our thirst in all kinds of different ways, but the problem is, often the water that we take in from these other sources just makes us sick. It just makes the dead places more deadly. It just adds salt to the Dead Sea. And that's not good for anybody. So in addition to asking, are you thirsty? I want to ask, where do you need the river of life to flow and bring restoration in your life? Where do you need to flow into your hearts and the nooks and the crannies, those places in the ground that are dried and cracked and thirsty, those places that are so dead, where do you need that water to flow in your own life? It may be in relationships. This has been a tough year on relationships. Whether it's because you've been kind of cramped up with too, like, too few people for too long, or stories I hear time and time again are the ways that this divisive year has just divided friendships. Whether it be divisive because of politics, or all of the, this racial tension that has resurfaced and the ways that people respond to it. All of the, the problems that we see or even the ways that we, we decide to respond to COVID, all of these things and more have just caused all of this brokenness in relationships among friends and even among family. Maybe that's some of the places that you need that water of life to flow. Or maybe, quite honestly, maybe it's faith. Maybe your faith has kind of become like the Dead Sea where, where it used to be a place of life, but over the years, whether this year or more, over the years it seems like more and more of that life-giving water has evaporated and all that's left behind is a junk. The things that cause that water to evaporate so often are suffering and brokenness, whether it be our own or even looking around and being overwhelmed with the poverty in the world, the racism in the world, the violence in the world, the hatred in the world. When we add to that our own loss, it's so easy to look and feel more in tune with Ezekiel's vision of God seemingly abandoning us than it is to recognize that God has gone before us even to those dead places. But maybe it's your faith. Maybe you look and say, pretty much all I've got left is is dead and putrid and gross. Maybe that's where you need the water of life to flow into. And if you're at that spot, it can be tough. I've been there. It's painful. And you may even look at it and say, This is beyond restoration. But if that's you, I have some good news because even if it feels like it's beyond restoration, it is not beyond resurrection. 
And it just so happens that the God that we serve is the God of resurrection, the God who specializes in going to the most dead places and bringing new life, the God for whom death is not the end, but is only the beginning of the next amazing and awesome thing that God is going to do. So even if you think it's beyond restoration, I assure you it's not beyond resurrection. There are two more things I want to do quickly. I know I'm running out of time, but I want us to look at one more aspect of of Ezekiel's river, and that's the way that it grows, because it doesn't grow like a normal river. If you look at another mighty river like the Amazon, it starts way up in the Andes in Peru, and it's just a little trickle, probably a lull, and it just starts up in the Andes, and then it goes clear from the Pacific Ocean all the way across to the Atlantic where it dumps out. And by the time it dumps out in the Atlantic, it's this huge, mighty, rushing, one of the mightiest rivers in the world. But what happens is that little stream that starts in the Andes, it gets all these tributaries added to it. And eventually the streams join up and then rivers join up and more and more gets added to it. And after it crosses that 4,000 miles, it's finally that mighty river. That's not how Ezekiel's river grows. There are two things to notice. One, there are no tributaries. The all that starts at the throne room is the entirety of the source. And then the other thing is to see how exponentially it grows. I know you're probably not super familiar with converting cubits to miles, and there's some different ways to do it, but a safe calculation is 1,000 cubits about a quarter mile. So it goes from almost nothing to ankle deep in a quarter mile, another quarter mile knee deep, another quarter mile waist deep, another quarter mile it is that raging giant river that you can't even cross with no tributaries and exponential growth. And here's one thing I want us to see in that. See, we are the body of Christ, and when we go and we drink from that fountain, the thing about the abundance of this fountain is the more we drink from it, the more there is. And when we drink from that fountain, we become conduits. When we drink from that river of life, we become conduits of that river of life. It flows out of us, but here's the crazy thing. We also become multipliers of it. And it's a miraculous multiplication. I I, I think of like the little boy who had a few fish and some loaves of bread and the way that, that Jesus multiplied that to feed thousands. It's that kind of multiplication. Because the more that we drink from it, the more we usher forth more of that life. And then soon someone else in our life sees that and they come and they drink it and they experience new life and it grows and grows and grows. The other thing I want us to see is jumping to the end of this whole story in Revelation. If you've been with New City for very long, you probably know that our namesake, our name comes from Revelation chapter 21. When John the Revelator has this amazing vision of a new heaven and a new earth and a new city descending onto that earth. And in that new city is the embodiment of God. God's glory, God's kabod rests in that city and God lives among us. And in that city, we see the fulfillment of God's vision where there is no longer death No more dying, no more suffering, no more pain, no more tears, no more injustice, no more brokenness, no more sin. We see this in John's vision of chapter 21, but that vision continues and spills over in chapter 22. And I want us to look at the first two verses of chapter 22 and see if you've heard this somewhere before. This is John the Revelator talking. He says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Have you seen this river before? 
See, we see this vision in Ezekiel, and then we see it again in Revelation. And in Revelation, we see the fulfillment of God's vision for creation. And what's really awesome is it doesn't even start in Ezekiel. It goes all the way back to the beginning when we have this garden in there, this garden we find that is fed by a river that brings it life. And then that river goes out and encompasses the four corners of the world. See, that was God's vision for creation, that God would be the source of life and all of us would thirst for him and be sustained by him. But if you know the story, you know it's not long before the paradise of that world is shattered and brokenness and death and sin enter in. But here's the thing, God doesn't give up on the vision. God doesn't even give up on us. God holds to that vision and keeps re-envisioning that vision. So God tabernacles among us and heaven and earth interlock. God fills the temple with his glory and heaven and earth interlock. God gives this vision of Ezekiel, this river that will flow through out of that place. Then we see Jesus the ultimate representation of who God is, the place where the living temple, where heaven and earth interlock. And then we get this. We are invited to partner with God in realizing that vision. We as a church become the place where heaven and earth interlock. We become conduits and multipliers of that river of life. And wherever that river of life flows, death is overcome. And one day it will multiply out enough that all death will be overcome. This isn't something that God just does on God's own. God invites us to participate, to give ourselves over to this vision and to live that vision out. And so we see the realization of this vision that goes all the way back to the beginning. And we're invited to be part of it, and that's what I want to do. I want to invite you today to be part of it. All you have to do is be thirsty. Whether you drink regularly from that river or not, all you have to do is be thirsty and come and drink. And then the one who provides the river of life, the one who is the river of life, he'll do the rest. He'll fill all those nooks and crannies. He'll find those dead places. And new life will sprout up. And before you know it, it'll be life abundant. And out of you will flow that same river. And when that happens, I'm telling you what, our neighborhoods will be changed. Our families will be changed, our schools will be changed, our city will be changed, and we will see more and more of the fulfillment of this great vision of God. Let's pray. But God, I thank you for, uh, for who you are. I thank you for being the source of life and for, for being the one who doesn't give up no matter how much death we throw in your way. God, I thank you that you are the God of resurrection. That for you, death is not the end. God, I pray today that we would be thirsty. That we would be like that desperate deer panting for water. And what we pant for, Lord, can only be quenched by you. God, I pray that you would forgive us for the times that we choose the, the stagnant, putrid, disease-filled water over the things that you've given us. But God, I thank you that no matter how many times I drink from that irrigation ditch, you continually call me back to the source of life. And no matter how much damage I do, somehow you are still able to find ways to bring new life out of it. So God, thank you for being the one who is the source and the sustainer of our life. And thank you for inviting us to partner with you in that. May your vision be fulfilled in us and through us. May New City be the fulfillment of part of that vision and, and may we flow into our neighborhoods and our schools and our city and God, may it be different 
because we have, we've chosen to take that invitation to partner with you and we've allowed you to flow in us and through us and to multiply your good works. So Lord, we just praise your name and we, we move now into this time of worship to continue doing so. In your name we pray, amen.